Dear friends, my name is John Bergen. I use he, him, and his, and I'm recording this in Philadelphia on unceded Lenny Lenape land. In case you didn't know, you're listening to The Word is Resistance, a podcast exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about surviving, resisting, and thriving in our current context of violence, repression, and white supremacist heteropatriarchal colonial capitalism. We ask, what do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance in showing up for liberation? The music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding, We Are Building Up a New World. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who came together for a movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014 and led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. This podcast is also a project of Surge Faith. Surge, or Showing Up for Racial Justice, organizes white people to take bold action against white supremacy. This podcast aims to resource us in that work, which means it's for everyone but geared towards white people working to build our resistance muscles. We welcome your feedback and especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. For these couple of weeks, we at Surge Faith are holding up organizers in Charlottesville as they prepare for the one-year anniversary of the Unite the Right rally that happened last August 11th and 12th. And today I'll be continuing that by interviewing my dear friend Grace, an organizer in Charlottesville. So before we jump into that, I invite you into a moment of prayer for everyone resisting white supremacists, fascists, and Nazis right now. If you're planning to be in Charlottesville or D.C. on the 12th, or if you were engaged in resistance to white supremacists this past weekend on the West Coast, or wherever you might be, this prayer is for you. Let's pray. Holy One, as we breathe in this sacred breath, we remember that each breath is a gift from you. Breathing in your love for all people, Give us strength to face conflict and adversity. Breathing in your desire for justice, remind us that we are called to a fierce and beautiful struggle against the powers of death and destruction. Breathing in your sacred spirit, return us to compassion for ourselves and our loved ones that we may follow Jesus in building a movement that advances your kingdom. Amen. So friends, how did we get here? How did we get to this Kairos moment where explicit white supremacy is on the march across our world, where millions of our siblings are caught up in systems of border imperialism and isolation and deportation, and where we are approaching the one-year anniversary of murderous street battle in the small town of Charlottesville, Virginia? How did Charlottesville get here? Yeah, I mean, in some ways I could start answering that question with talking about Thomas Jefferson being here 200 years ago. Um, and I think it's hard to draw those connections for some people. And it, it can feel like 
it just the white supremacists who rallied here last August just picked a random place on the map um, that some of them happen to have an affiliation to. But I think that would, you know, do a disservice to people of color in this community who have been saying for hundreds of years how ingrained and institutionalized and unseen really dangerous white supremacy is here in Charlottesville. Um, yeah, and I mean, you know, the University of Virginia, where college that was built and served by enslaved workers and, and the legacy of Thomas Jefferson here um, is, is extremely strong. And so in some ways, like August 12th, the seeds were sown hundreds of years ago. Um, and then it really all began, not even last, you know, not even with the planning of the United the Right rally, but um, in April of, I guess it was 2016, a young local black woman, she was 15 years old at the time, 15 years old, held a press conference in uh, what was then called Lee Park, where the huge statue is. And she called for the removal of the statues at this press conference. And that was sort of the first domino that started to fall. And at that press conference, there were probably 50 Confederate flaggers with huge flags just screaming at her and yelling at us for being there and, you know, talking about wanting to, us wanting to erase history. And it was in that moment that I realized that we were pulling the you know, pulling back the veil of something that was much, much bigger than, than just this statue issue. The statue was standing in for a lot. Um, so since then, you know, since that one press conference, the city started this planning commission um, to, you know, that met for like six months that was talking, that was, you know, debating and studying about whether the Confederate statue should be removed. And in the end, they ended up giving a sort of wishy-washy, yes, maybe, no, maybe, um, and then once city council voted to remove the statue, that's when things just really started to explode. Um, and that was, that was last spring. Um, and yeah, the Lee statue really just became the lightning rod for all of these things. And since that vote, um, it feels as if there has been constant white supremacist presence every week. Um, you know, we're on these text message threads where at any hour of the day, at any time, there might be a different group rolling through Charlottesville. And that was certainly more acute before um, the United Right rally, but it's still been happening since then. Um, you know, the Proud Boys, which is this really violent sort of gang of white supremacists, came through just a few weeks, few weeks ago. And there are various trials that are ongoing here. They're attracting white supremacists and their friends. Um, yeah, so it's just, it does sort of feel like ground zero for white supremacist organizing in this country. Um, yeah, and, and to your point about what made, what, what happening before April made it so intense was that it just hasn't stopped. Like, it felt like August here since August, you know, with being gaslit by the city and gaslit, activists being gaslit by other people in the community saying, you know, why can't you all get over this? Or why are you so angry? Can't we just move on and heal? Um, to, again, these court cases continuing to happen. And then, you know, sort of the final straw being that there was a United Right rally part two proposed here and now in D.C. Um, yeah, it's just, it's never, it hasn't been over for us. And I, I can't really describe how how difficult that's been for you know, people of color here and people on the front lines of organizing, it just has really taken a lot out of us. Um, because Charlottesville is, is a really small town. 
a town of 50,000 people um, with not a huge activist infrastructure, that we are few and mighty, but not many. Um, so it's not, you know, like a bigger city that has a lot of just more people to, to do the work. Um, yeah, so that's a little taste of it. And I guess I should say, you know, like despite all of that or in spite of all of that, in the face of all of that, so much has been accomplished. And looking back on where we are now from where we were last year, it's it's amazing. And I'm so proud to um, to work with the people that I've been able to work with here. And I'm really proud of what we've accomplished and what we've, we've stood against because it's really been been more than anyone should have been asked to do. So that brings us up to a year ago. But we know that after the media circus leaves, the violence and the after effects of violence still persist, even intensify. So I asked Grace, what, what's been up since A12 last year? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is I think the really unsung heroes of this whole thing are a lot of incredible mental health care providers and like just care providers in general here in Charlottesville. There are a few that are really... Um, you know, uh, activists-y minded or they're activists themselves. Um, not surprisingly, mostly queer or people of color healthcare providers, but um, there have been so many folks that have given free acupuncture, free body work, or there's this local um, kind of wellness center called Common Ground that's been offering free services to people of, to people of color specifically and um, A11 and A12 survivors um, since August. And, um, you know, other folks offering mental health care and just being available at the drop of the hat is what it feels like. Um, and for the anniversary, they've all set up um, in a church a um, day of mental health care and body care um, sort of center for anybody to go to at any time. So, <laughs> yeah, that's definitely one of the ways that I think, like, wow, the infrastructure that's been put in place to just hold people um you know, as they're processing trauma is, is really incredible. And my hat's off to them. Um, more of the incredible work I think that's being done too, is that we set up a um, 501c4, the Charlottesville Resilience Fund um, that started, you know, like right around um, August 12th last year and has been collecting money to do, we just keep saying it's low key reparations. So it's people, when you donate, um, the money goes to sort of, this large fund and then there's a group of folks like local community members and activists and um, people of color who then distribute folks distribute money to folks who have applied and it's anything from like paying for a kid's backpack and lunchbox for school this year to helping someone pay their water bill so it doesn't get shut off to picking up gas so that somebody can go and visit their grandma who's you know out of state it's really basic needs for people of color um, mostly people of color in the community and yeah, that didn't exist before August. And as a way to like care for the ongoing needs of our community, I'm really, really proud of that work. Um, yeah. And, and I think like, finally, I would just say like, we've created activist and direct action infrastructure that didn't exist um, the year, uh, last year at this time. And, you know, that's rapid response networks and that's really amazing medics and that's folks who, you know, know what to do when an arrest happens and can go to the jail and help get people out. Um, we're just way more prepared to, to deal with the kind of stuff that comes up um, when, when scary things happen with either the state or with, you know, white supremacists in uniform or out of uniform, I guess I should say. 
Um, yeah, and, and, you know, and all of that is in this cloud of, of trauma and, and all of the stuff that we've been going through here. We've, we've really been able to do a lot um, and take care of each other in, in the midst of it. And it's, it's nothing short of amazing. In the Hebrew Scripture lectionary passage for August 12th, David's troops battle his son Absalom's troops at Ephraim. Absalom is the one who kills his sister Tamar's rapist, who was their half-brother, and then later he rebels against David because he believes he can better distribute justice to the people. And in the battle, Absalom's troops are completely routed. But in the course of the battle, the writer tells us, quote, the battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest claimed more victims that day than the sword. Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. His head caught fast in the oak, and he was left hanging between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on, end quote. That's 2 Samuel 18, 8-9. In movement work, it, it is sometimes true that we lose more people to trauma, to burnout, to exclusion and infighting in the trees of the day-to-day work than we do in the moments of battle. In the attempts to escape physically, spiritually, etc. from trauma, we get caught in the trees and end up exposed, caught between heaven and earth. I was curious what lessons people in Charlottesville had learned about how to move through the terrain of battle and not get caught in the trees. Yeah, and I, I guess I'm still learning a lot about about how we take care of each other and how we hold space for conflict and, um, you know, trying to figure out where I locate myself in these kind of questions. And I think one thing that I keep coming back to is that I, Grace, personally, don't believe that people are disposable. Um, and I'm trying to, like, do my work and do my organizing in that way, not treating people as disposable and, you know, trying to learn skills to commit to um, helping just be with people and work through stuff. You know, some people keep saying, like, oh, does that mean that we should try to reconcile with white supremacists? Or does that mean that Jason Kessler, the local organizer of the United Right Rally, we should sit down and talk with him and try to, like, work it all out? And I think for me, you know, in an, as a Christian, as a person of faith, and as, you know, a, uh, a student of Grace Lee Boggs, the Chinese-American organizer in the South, uh, in the Detroit, rather, um, I have to believe that people can change. And I also recognize that starting with such an extreme example as, like, Jason Kessler um, or any white supremacist, like, that is so overwhelming. I don't even have the tools to, like, you know, reconcile with my own roommates when we offend each other. Like, I don't, I haven't learned the tools to, like, have these conversations when something even really basic in my life happens. So kind of in, in a restorative justice perspective, going from zero to 100 seems kind of impossible. So I guess this is a long way to answer your question, is that I think, like, we just need to start small and start with the people who actually are our friends and we actually do love and be cultivating these skills of, you know, addressing um harm when it comes up and not being afraid of conflict amongst ourselves and trying to like, you know, iron sharpens iron kind of thing, build up our movement and by not mm-hmm. being afraid of, you know, lovingly, firmly and lovingly um, growing together in, in conflict and when things come up and, and then maybe, you know, we'll be able to address, like, we'll, we'll get the skills to be able to hold these conversations in, in larger spaces. Um, because I think, yeah, like talking about getting caught in the trees, like 
the way that trauma works is just like if something is hurting you, you want to like get rid of it, you know, and there has been like infighting and people hurting each other and just trauma kind of working itself out in real time in our conversations and our relationships. And, and that's really hard. And it's hard for us to kind of be trying to cultivate those skills um, on the fly after a really horrific traumatic event. So I would say to like my comrades elsewhere in the country who haven't experienced this acute trauma yet, like now is the time to start figuring out what your processes of accountability look like and what your values are and where you locate yourself in all of this. And um, because once the rubber hits the road, it's really hard to kind of like backtrack and all of this when you're holding a lot of trauma. Um, so in the gospel lectionary passage for the 12th, which is John 6, 41 to 51, Jesus is talking about himself as the bread of life, saying, your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died, and that whoever shares in eating the bread of life will live forever. It's kind of visceral and intense. He says, quote, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, which I... John, take to mean that partaking in the bread of life is partaking in work that might lead to the suffering inflicted upon Jesus' human flesh at the crucifixion. So there's something sustaining about our faith and something sustaining about sharing in this work with Jesus. So I ask Grace, what has been her bread of life in the past year? Um, and a warning to, to viewers who might be very young or bothered by this sort of thing, this response does contain a swear word, which uh, she addresses a little bit and explains. Someone recently defined self-care. I heard her define self-care as creating a life that you don't have to escape from in mm. order to rest. <laughs> and that's been a challenge. Um, I, I, that's been sort of this like little North Star for me is like, how can I be creating a life in the movement that I don't have to feel like I need to escape? Um, because there have definitely been moments in Charlottesville where I have to leave in order to rest. It's this mm -hmm. almost like really mystical, spiritual, powerful thing that's just, like, I, I, I feel like I can't rest when I'm here because I feel like I'm constantly going to be called upon to do something. Um, so the challenge has been, how do you, how, yeah, how do I turn that part of my brain off? How do, or how do I reprogram that to, to really be able, be able to rest? Um, and so some of the sustaining bread of life stuff, honestly, has been learning about how my brain works with trauma. Um, mm. And I'm the kind of person who, when I know how the mechanisms are working, then when I start to kind of freak out or have a panic attack or whatever, and I'm like, okay, this is my brain going into reptile mode. And I know that these things work for me and my partner and my roommates know that these things work for me to help calm me down, to get me back into the place that I need to be. Um, so in some ways we've actually in our community done a lot of education around yeah, the effects of trauma on the brain and how we can help each other kind of move through those acute moments. So that's the sort of like, you know, more uh, bodily scientific thing um, that's been sustaining to me. But I think um, also one of the biggest things is just like creating a spiritual community or surrounding myself in a spiritual community where I can relax and not feel like I have to be on and just mm. be really um, be able to be really honest and just say like, fuck all of this. And everybody in the room be like, yeah, uh-huh, totally. Mm -hmm. Um, which is not how I feel in a lot of spiritual spaces. Um, and I think again, to like the setting up stuff structures before it gets too bad, it was really God doing me a solid, I think 
um, years, four years ago, I um, started, I started this intentional community that I live in now and we've been building it and growing it and, you know, midwifing it as they say together into this place that is extremely beautiful and restful. And we have this strong community here of folks who are, you know, radical Christians who, who, who are coming from the same place as me. And so to have that before all of the shit started hitting the fan um, in, you know, last year here in Charlottesville, it has felt like this little boat um, to the storm where I can come home and feel safe and held. Um, and the people that come here are the ones who are, are holding me. And I, I don't know that we could have created that um, in the midst of everything happening. And, you know, the folks in my community who were not as involved in frontline stuff are the ones who are sort of like stewarding this space and who will hold spiritual space for those of us who are more out in the streets or who will, you know, make breakfast after morning prayer and just let us, you know, freak out and cry. Um, so really my community, the physical space that's been restful to me has been um, so sustaining. If I didn't have that, I would have like probably ran away from Charlottesville a long time ago. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, the final thing I'll say, and this might sound cheesy, but really like doing all this front lines work, I've just really deepened my relationship with scripture and with like Jesus's project of, you know, constantly responding to threats by the state and threats by others. And um, at the same time, trying to do like his healing work and proclaiming the good news. Um, just when you're really like, living in intense moments and trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong and where you stand and like threats are coming at you left and right. Um, I don't know. It's helped me drop into, to, yeah, to Jesus's story in a, in a deeper way. That's been really, really beautiful. And that's been, um, yeah, a real gift that I don't think I've completely unpacked yet. So maybe once I move out of Charlottesville, I'll be able to, to figure out what was really happening there, but the scriptures have really sustained me too. And, um, you know, just, being in regular old Bible studies with my roommates when we're talking about Nazi presence and, you know, able to connect that to Holy Scripture has felt like, wow, this feels really relevant now. This is not just something that happened thousands of years ago, you know. Friends, today's call to action is to support the organizing happening in Charlottesville. Please check out the call to action from Congregate Charlottesville and from Seville Resistance 2018. And please give to the Charlottesville Community Resilience Fund, which Grace mentioned earlier. Links to all these resources can be found in the transcript and on the Surge Faith Facebook page. Additionally, Yeah, I would say you can follow a lot of the media that happens out of Charlottesville. Um, Third, Seville has a Twitter handle and a Facebook page, and then also Solidarity Seville is um, an independent activist media collective, which got birthed out of last August, which is also another thing I'm really proud of, that now we have a, um, an activist media collective here that's picking up stuff. So I think, like, just keep telling the story of Charlottesville and telling it from the perspective of activists here, which is that, like, you know, folks are going to want to say, or the city and others are going to want to say, like, oh, there's no more white supremacy here. 
you know, that left in August, but um, <clears throat> the real story is that, you know, white supremacy showed its face in Charlottesville in a really overt way, but there are, it's, it's still alive and well here. So keep following us on the media and signal boosting. And I hope that what happened here and the lessons that we learned here will help, um, help anyone else's communities across the country and the world um, do better as we organize and fight against in this really intense time and uh Steve will show up for you too just holler at us on social media and um we're pretty pretty good at at doing the thing these days so um yeah I'm grateful for all the love that people have sent to us as well thank you for joining me today and as always let us know how it goes by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages you can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org and our podcast lives at SoundCloud search for the word is resistance you can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Transcripts are available on our website, which include any references, credits, and copyright information. Uh, thanks to our sound editor, Maxwell Pearl, and a huge, huge thanks to Grace, who is juggling a thousand things right now and still took the time on a Thursday morning to take my call and answer my questions. Thank you, Grace. So blessings to all of you as you continue in the work of being transformed, of transforming the movement, and transforming the world. Amen. Yeah.